Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question. How does an artist find their voice? I am your host, Nicholas Krolak. If you like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through Sonic Space and my website, nicholaskrolak.com, or on Instagram at nicholas underscore Krolak. Today's episode is brought to you by Riccardi's Violin Shop. I've been bringing my basses to Rob Riccardi for years, from basic setups, rehairing bows, and gluing seams, to the major overhaul he recently did on my carved bass. Rob has always kept my basses in great shape and sounding their best. Located in South Jersey, a stone's throw away from Philadelphia, is an added bonus that will save you time and money for all your string repair needs. Check them out at ricardiviolinshop.com. My guest today is Nick Finzer, trombonist, educator, and founder of the New York City-based record label Outside In Music. Famed trombonist and mentor Wyclef Gordon called Finzer, quote, a new voice in the pantheon of upcoming trombone greats in the making, unquote. An accomplished educator, Finzer is the assistant professor of jazz trombone at the legendary University of North Texas and serves as the artistic director and co-founder of the Institute for Creative Music. His latest album, Cast of Characters, released on Outside In Music, is a masterfully developed thematic work that builds into something larger than the sum of its parts. You can check it out and everything else that Nick Finzer is up to at www.nickfinzermusic.com. Nick Finzer, thanks for taking the time being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to start talking warm-ups. Uh, I was on, on your website, and you have a really great resource, um, a lot of really great educational resources on there that we'll get into. But I'm, I'm very fascinated with warm-up routines mm-hmm. and different warm-up routines. And I, I played along with... Uh, your get ready series. Oh really? Okay. It's kind of fun to do on bass. It was like some parts were like a little, a little weird. Sure. Like, oh, it took a minute to, to translate. But did you talk a little bit about the get ready series and kind of what went into what went into that? Yeah, for sure. I um, wanted to put that together because I wanted something new for myself and something that was short. And a lot of, I found a lot just from teaching a lot that a lot of my students' routines were kind of really long and 
kind of a little wasteful of time. So I try not to just say, and not, I don't think it's any better than anybody else's warm up. It's just a version of a warm up that you could do that's like, if you play it straight through, it's 20 minutes, a little less than 20 minutes. So it's kind of, for me, hitting the major areas for jazz trombone playing, which are sound, flexibility, and articulation, and uh, trying to put that into something that maybe they hadn't heard before. And I know some of the, you know, some younger players like to have something to play along with. And so I had a friend of mine compose some play along tracks to go along with it. And I was just, I've been slowly trying to uh, build my educational repertoire to include kind of all different facets of playing and jazz and trombone. And so just one more kind of step in the, in getting like a kind of a 360 approach to having materials together for people of various levels and ages and all that sort of stuff. So that was uh, something that I put together last year and it came out last summer. Mm -hmm. if, if you were to have a situation where you're very crunched for time and you have to play real soon and you need to get like the quickest, most efficient warm up in, what, what would you do? Oh, there's just like one pitch bending exercise that I usually do when I only have time for like two minutes or three minutes. Uh, and if there's less time than that, then I just play a couple of notes. You know, I don't know. I had a teacher, uh, Wycliffe Gordon. I used to be at gigs and he would like show up straight from the airport and he wouldn't warm up at all and he would just play. And I was always fascinated by that. And I used to ask him about it. So I tried and I try, I try to not do that, but you know, I've kept it in the back of my mind that that's like a real reality and that yeah. you have to just be able to like warm up while you're playing whatever. Yeah. I had a similar situation with Dave Wong where I was studying with him and he, I, had, I always had lessons with him first thing in the morning mm -hmm. and he showed up flying in from Mexico city like that night, red eye. And yeah, you know, I didn't realize that he didn't tell me that till the end of the lesson and he was still just, just himself and I was like wow man yeah like how do you do that's that a, <laughs> yeah it's like road warrior players man they got they've got something else you you talked about uh, being efficient with time in your warm-up mm -hmm. and in one of your videos in the background I saw one of my favorite books Tim Ferriss's Tools of the Titans mm -hmm. and um, I've, I've learned a lot from him and his podcast about uh, time management, and that's become a big uh, area of study for me because uh, I've wasted a lot of time in, in previous years, and I'm trying to get better at that. You s seem to be all over the place doing all kinds of stuff, and what advice do you have for uh, musicians or, or, or fans that want to improve their time management skills? Um. Well, I do recommend checking out some other people's resources to try to learn from them, like you're saying. I had always been sort of aware of time management since, I don't know, high school, I suppose, because I've always just been a person that's involved in a lot of things. And my dad always kind of instilled it in me that you have to plan stuff out or you're also going to forget stuff, you know. So uh, that's just something that's always been part of my being, I suppose. But uh, my, w let's see, when I was, when I'm, was in grad school that's when i first started checking out tim ferris and his book the four hour work week and just started to think about being more efficient uh, in ways that i hadn't considered before but my suggestion is to get a real planner meaning a physical planner because uh, i thought i could do it all on my phone and i had been doing it on my phone and the computer but then I, d I found out when i just wrote stuff out by hand it just stuck a little bit better and 
it just was more actually more efficient just to do it actually on a piece of paper or in a planner. And so that's the first thing. One, being aware to checking out some resources like maybe Tim Ferriss. So there's lots of other resources about time management and different approaches. Um, and then third is that you know physical planner writing it out. So awareness, learning, and then trying to do something about it, I guess. Yeah. Um, another educational resource you have on your website is the, the Get Ahead series. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd like to jump into some of the things you, you talk about in there, but can you just give uh, my listeners just an overview of what that is? Oh, sure. So Get Ahead was like the first book that I ever put together, and uh, that came out in 2013. And what it was was uh, I was teaching a lot, doing a lot of summer camps at that time, and I was finding that I was giving the same lecture over and over and over again. And again, <laughs> this idea of being efficient with time and energy, I was like, well, I could, you know, do the same thing over and over. But by the end of like those three years of doing camps, I had kind of a packet put together of like all ex different exercises that weren't just warm-ups, that weren't necessarily a method book. It was kind of just like a collection to an approach to imp improving for, for musicians that could play the instrument a little bit already, which is a lot of people that are entering jazz. They have some background and they're just trying to get the jazz stuff together. So it's really focused on that kind of those first couple of years of jazz study, trying to get style and articulation, just kind of the basics together. So I took that packet that I had developed from doing a bunch of teaching for of summer camps, which is mostly high school age students, and putting it together uh, in a way that I thought was you know, kind of an overview rather than a, like a method book per se. Uh, so it's kind of just an overview of jazz trombone style. There's some transcriptions and etudes and exercises and stuff like that, uh, just a, a, an overview. So anyway, so I put that together and put that out in, in a book and then um, have iterated that into a, an online course and added stuff to the online course that's not in the book with hopefully the idea of eventually having a volume two, but that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> Um, one of the one of the topics that you cover in, in that series is uh, how to learn tunes, mm -hmm. and what is your process like for for learning a tune, and how do you recommend learning? And for me, just personally, and I, I see this a lot in in students too, is retaining a tune over long periods of time when like you might not get called, you might not play a tune for for a while. Like, how do you learn tunes, and how do you retain? I recommend learning them on the piano, and so therefore if you have no piano skills, that kind of requires some, some prerequisites to get that up to snuff, mm -hmm. to at least be able to play roots and thirds and sevenths. Because as single note players, uh, we often have trouble with remembering harmonies. And so the, the biggest thing that I try to get students to do is to get rid of their real books and try to learn tunes uh, from recordings by ear, just because I know for me, I started learning by trying just to memorize like a tune off a piece of paper and then it just becomes an exercise in memorization of like a random sequence of chords rather than trying to internalize pattern like chord patterns and chord chord movement and tonal centers and this kind of thing so I've, I've found just from an early age that the earlier you can get the students to start doing it that way the easier it is to uh, learn more tunes faster in the long run so I kind of have a you know, a, a, a method of kind of learning the melody and then the root melody and then going through a series of thirds and sevenths and walking bass lines and all this kind of stuff. I don't make every student do every part of it because they don't need to. 
sometimes, but if you're coming from right from the beginning, having some sort of method for doing it, I think is important. It doesn't have to be my method, but I just give them a bunch of suggestions. You could do this or this or this or this and put together your own routine that allows you to learn, learn tunes. But in terms of the retaining part, after you learn it, it's like you actually just have to make yourself play it, you know, and I know it never gets called, but I think about, I just think about this. And I try to use this as an example. When I was in college, I had like a like a funk fusion band, and we used to play every week. And so I could still to this day play all of those tunes because they were never written down. They ne- we played them every week. Well, and so you just have to create a situation for yourself where you actually are playing the tunes because, or else you're not going to remember them. Just period. Like there's no way you're not going to just like. At least for me, I don't have a photographic memory or anything. So if I'm not playing the music, it's gonna it's gonna disappear. I had a you know, some friends that like make like a, a playlist that they're working on for like a month and they're like, okay, these are, this is the set for this month and I'm learning these six tunes or whatever it might be. And uh, there's different methods to doing it, but just actually just getting together and playing, having friends that are going to hold you accountable to learning the tunes can be good. But just like my approach to like trombone and playing that is kind of, I feel like everyone has their own way of learning and their own way that their mind works. So showing them a bunch of ways and letting them find their own way to me is the most important because I can't I can just tell someone what to do something but it's not as effective as them absorbing and putting together their own method based on a bunch of information absolutely I, I like I refer to it as evolving um, I've, I'm very fascinated by how people's practice routines evolve and that, that's a question I ask a lot actually which you talked about um, like how did, how did you used to transcribe? How do you transcribe now? I find that that all very interesting. And you mentioned, um, kind of, kind of referred to it as like the Abersol kind of method of like, you play these these notes during these times, <laughs> you yeah. know. Uh-huh. And th- that's very much how like I was exposed to jazz, mm-hmm. and I have like a very pattern oriented kind of mind, so it it was very easy for me to, to do that. And it was very easy for me to memorize just a sheet of paper. Mm. But then when I get into like real world situations where people weren't necessarily doing that, you know, that really threw me for a long time and I had to go back. And so you're very right that in the long run, learning things by ear pays way bigger div- dividends than just trying to memorize the sheets of paper. And you also talk about in the Get Head series of, um, using a practice journal. Mm-hmm. I started doing that in, in grad school and it's huge, 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 huge. And I really enjoy it, actually. I hated it at first, but sure. um, yeah. how, do you, how do you use a, use a practice journal? Well, I'll be the first to admit I'm not as diligent now as I was in grad school, for sure, about using the practice journal. But um, I got the idea, I think it was from... A master class with Ron Carter, I think, and he was talking about keeping a practice journal. And um, just for me, it was actually just in terms of trying to develop an efficient practice routine. Because as you might imagine, for any instrument, there's a certain limitation to your longevity of playing during a day, you know. And mm-hmm. so that physicality, I was trying to balance that with the amount of stuff I needed to learn and how what was the most effective way to you know, organize that. So I was like, all right, well, I better 
figure out some type of approach. So I started keeping a practice journal and I was just really super anal, I guess, about it and trying, and I try to pass that on to my students. Like just for a little while, be super, super detailed. Like put, I'll say, all right, it's 11, 16 a.m. And I started practicing and I ended at 12.03 and I did these three things and just be really specific so that you can see kind of what is efficient and what's not. Because I used to, in undergrad, I used to just say, okay, it's Sunday, I have all day, I'm gonna lock myself in the practice room and go. And so then I would be in there for six, seven hours straight, and then I would compare that to like, okay, but during the week I'm only in the practice room half as long, but I'm actually practicing more things somehow. So what exactly am I doing, you know? And so then I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just futzing around on my phone and, you know, whatever. I mean, this was 10 years ago, but, so that's what I do. I tried to keep it extremely detailed at first, and then from there, reflecting back and saying, okay, how long am I actually focusing for, and how long is too long? And so for me, I found 90 minutes to two hours was kind of the maximum amount of focus that I could really mm-hmm. zone in on, with breaks, of course, but like that was kind of the chunk. So I would be like, all right, I'm going to do 90 minutes in the morning, 90 minutes in the afternoon, and 90 minutes in the evening as a goal, you know, to try to organize different types of practice into different situations. Um, For me, it helps to compartmentalize a little bit. So I'm like, all right, I'm working on like trombone fundamental stuff. Then I'm working on jazz language. And then I'm working on learning and playing tunes, you know, so in different categories so that I wasn't confusing my mind so I could really go try to go deep into each category kind of separately and that worked for me I don't know that it worked that will work for everyone but um, mm-hmm. I think by keeping track it's just like you know if you are talking to a, a trainer you know they're going to make you write down what you eat and write down what you're working out and blah 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 and it's the same for us if you want to be really efficient and effective you know and then um, I don't know. It worked for me, but uh, that's what yeah. I that's what I recommend. And so I just created a practice journal because some people wanted to have that, you know, guided experience. So I just made that. And there's a free download of a page or whatever on my on my site that people can use. But I always just say you don't need anything. Just get a piece of paper and start writing stuff down. You know, it doesn't it doesn't have to be like a practice journal. It's just a binder of paper or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In regards to transcribing. What would you recommend like the first step for a like a student that has some proficiency but has never really uh, played uh, jazz specifically like what what would be like a first like uh, intro to transcribing how would you get them in the door because that could be very um, intimidating mm-hmm. for students I found especially you know jazz camp age high school middle school oh yeah for sure uh, I think you can't deny the value of being able to sing along with the transcription fully and without having any doubt about what's coming next. Because the two places where I see students get caught up the most is I don't know what comes next in the solo and I don't know how to write it down. And so eliminating both of those two things is my goal with early improvisers. Uh, So getting them to the point where they can sing along with the recording without any hesitation before they even pick up the instrument and try to figure it out. And number two, not making them write it down because uh, the rhythmic dictation thing, if you've never done it before, is really hard. It can be, especially with jazz musicians playing crazy dragged triplets and this and that, you know, like it's like, I'm like, it's not that important to write it down at this point. So getting them to do that, those singing and then 
playing it on the instrument. After that, again, not writing it down, not relying on our eyes, but relying on our ears. Um, and then making sure to pick something that's not going to be too challenging to start so that they have success early on and then and then they can go on, you know. And I always try to emphasize the fact that, look, if there's two measures that are really hard, but you can play the rest of the solo, play everything but those two measures and leave them out. And then mm. in a year, we'll come back to it, and then you'll be able to play those two measures. And I just try to emphasize that it's like, it's not about being able to play every note in the solo. It's about getting the overall picture, most of the language, the feeling of the swing, you know, all of that good stuff. Uh, so I try not to let them get caught up in the places where I know I got caught up, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, so I just try to push them forward because you know you have to have early success, or else it's really, really, really hard to want for them to have that intrinsic motivation. At least I found. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you brought up a, a really good point um, that I was going to actually ask about, and that's when you get to that that moment. I find when I when, tr when transcribing something, I get to a hard part, you know. I have to use like slow down or thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, I get it. Slow, slow down. And then a lot of the time that I'll be able to get it up back up to 90%. Mm -hmm. And then I just cannot break 90% tempo on that part. And um, that can be really discouraging. And I hadn't really thought of it that way, but that's generally what I end up doing is just, oh, I got to come back to it another point in time because that two measures of a trumpet exactly thing is not translating for me at this moment exactly but, um when transcribing what are some things that are not trombone players that you enjoy transcribing that you get like a particular you get something out of that you wouldn't get from transcribing a, a, a trombone solo oh i mean there's so much of the trombone Rep not repertoire, but vocabulary is based on, and I think it's true of most instruments, based on the ease of playing that vocabulary on that instrument. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, like Curtis Fuller, for example, it is, and he's very much playing the shape of shapes of the instrument. And so is mm -hmm. like Steve Davis and all these people. So doing another instrument gets you out of those shapes, right? So that's uh, a both a challenge and very beneficial. So I go to Clifford Brown a lot because it's still a brass instrument, so there's certain like you know limitations of phrase length based on chops and stuff like that. Uh, sometimes saxophone stuff on trombone can be really uh, hard because of like leaps and so many leaps and so much long, so much longer phrases and stuff like that. So I send my students to Clifford Brown often after some trombone stuff or Lee Morgan. Uh, I, I just try to keep within the family at first but um mainly i try to always have like a focus when i assign a transcription or i'm thinking about a transcription and when i'm assigning non-trombone stuff or myself transcribing it it's always because of like the the content usually like it's like oh they're playing in this unusual way or they play different vocabulary than i understand like i don't know what he's doing and i need to figure that out but for other things like swing or um, eighth note feel, it's I find easier to put it in a comfortable place, you know, put it on, in, on the instrument. Um, but that's been my go-to lately has been Clifford Brown, I guess, for, for yeah. not. Uh, also, Hank Mobley is pretty accessible on trombone. 
there's some pretty inaccessible things. <laughs> but I mean, even I just think about this, you know, when I was in grad school, the first guest artist we had was Curtis and Curtis came to Juilliard and he, we had a trombone master class and he's like, all right, I want you guys to work on this transcription. And he put up John Coltrane on moment's notice. He's like, I'm still practicing it to this day. I'm like, oh man, come on. <laughs> so great. anyway. Yeah, I, I, I find transcribing trumpet players is, is very uh, interesting on, on bass. Mm -hmm. I get a lot out of it. I think the, the range of the instruments are kind of similar if you, mm. you know, obviously not in the same octaves, but. Well, yeah, because the lowest note is F sharp, which is your E, it's like E, so it kind of works out, right? Yep, yep. And then, then those like screaming notes are like up and thumb position. Oh, okay. Kind of have that same, kind of have the same timbre. And the attack is kind of similar to me mm. in, in a way. That's interesting. But, yeah, I, I get a lot out of that and, um, you know, really kicks my ass, but uh, in a good way. Yeah, yeah. So you are the... I'm going to get your title right. Um, <laughs> assistant professor of jazz trombone. Yeah, that's true. At University of North Texas. Yes. That's correct. That's true. And um, I'd like you to talk about that and uh, the program and your experiences there. But I would also like you to talk about, because you're in New York a bunch and you're all over the place. And how do you just manage all of all of that, all the travel, all the everything? How do I manage? Uh, I kind of put blinders on and just do what I do what my calendar says. Um, uh, I honestly I've been doing this similar kind of thing for a, a while because when I there was a couple years right after school where I was basically just in New York, but then kind of in from 20, 2014 I got a job as a visiting professor at Florida State University. And so I was teaching in Florida two days a week. So I was flying back and forth between Florida and New York every week. And then um, I stopped doing that and, and was in New York. But then I was basically on the road the entire time after that. And so then I was like, well, and I'm still hardly ever in New York, but you know, half the time there, but on the road the rest of the time. And then, and then this, I did a master class part of the UNT's like uh, spring semester. They do a lecture series, and I was a guest artist. And they're like, you know, we have a trombone position open. You know, you should apply. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. And so just sent some stuff in. And mm -hmm. anyway, one thing led to another, and they made an offer. And and so I was like, well, this seems like a cool opportunity. And so I'm gonna see what see what this is about. But the balance, I I don't know that I'm necessarily the poster boy for balance. You know, um, <laughs> I just kind of jump off the deep end and, and kind of just make it work. Um, so, you know, it's things go up and down. And sometimes I'm spending more time in New York. Sometimes I'm spending more time in Texas. Sometimes I'm spending more time in the road. It just kind of has been a fluctuating uh, situation. Uh, I keep I just try to go with the flow at this point and just see where opportunity uh, takes me. Because I never expected that I would be doing this, so I'm like, let's see what else happens now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I like that attitude. That's that's a, a thing I'm trying to cult been trying to cultivate in myself, and you know, just just do it. No one's gonna no one's gonna do it for you. Right. Yep. Um, I would like to talk a bit about your compositions. Okay. And composing, and specifically your album, Cast of Characters. 
because to me, in listening to it, uh, everything was just so thematic and, and flowing and interconnected. And for me personally, that's a thing I'm looking to cultivate more in my, my own writing. So like, first of all, I'll talk about the album itself. And then, then we'll get into you know, composition and, and how, how it all came about. But yeah, please talk about the, the album. Okay, sure. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for listening to it. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so the album is the fifth album with my band, my sextet. And the last couple of albums had somehow become a little tuney. Like, uh, here's just a bunch of tunes and just a collection yeah. of tunes. And I was feeling discouraged about that, I suppose. I don't know why. But I just like, yeah, I feel like this isn't big picture enough it doesn't feel like a unified statement like the things you were saying so i i did kind of try to come up with a concept first and kind of an idea about what the album would be and how i could write music to create this sort of experience so it didn't just randomly happen it was definitely a planned thing right from the beginning and i was and i kind of took an approach kind of stolen a little bit from like a Bob Brookmeyer compositional approach of taking like one idea and seeing how many different ways you can, you know, break it apart and put it back together and all this sort of stuff, you know, just rearranging, rearranging all the deck chairs, I guess. And um, mm -hmm. I wrote the pieces uh, trying to develop ideas about archetypes of people because uh, I wanted the listener to be able to imagine their own their own personal experience with that sort of figure that's in their life and be able to project their feelings into it to have a more uh, personal relationship with the music rather than just be like, this is what the song is about. This is about how much I dislike this person and blah, blah, you know, I didn't want to tell anyone what it was. I was trying to invoke the idea at least was that I wanted people to invoke whatever it felt for them to think about this type of person, whether it was like a romantic interest or someone that inspired them or somebody that was a teacher of theirs. Um, and I didn't necessarily want to tell them what to think or feel. So anyway, that was the idea. And then I wanted it to be able to be listened to in small chunks, like what it means to put out music in 2020. People are only going to listen to one thing, one, one song at a time, probably. But for my own personal gratification, I wanted it to have uh, the ability to listen all, all the way through. So as kind of one statement. And uh, so I was trying to compose with all those ideas in mind. Um, and yeah, so it turned out to be this cast of characters. And it has kind of six pieces that were the character pieces, the, the kind of the longer pieces on the album. There's a bunch of kind of short interlude type pieces on there and then a few a few other tunes that kind of tie the theme so in the in the liner notes i kind of separated the tunes into like the cast which is like these people you encounter and then uh the journey meaning like your path and life and how it's kind of a, trying to be about how they intersect and how your your perspective evolves over the course of meeting different people and how they influence you or push you away and just just real life, you know, and just how things change over time. So um, maybe it's a little bit uh, wishful on my part to think people will get to that level of connection with the music, but I felt like I hadn't really put that much energy into that planning, like that like emotional or thematic planning to music in a long time, and I just really wanted to do it. So that's, that's kind of the driving force in trying to come up with something different 
Uh, I didn't want to, I knew it was going to be like, okay, here's the fifth album. Is this really just going to be another batch of tunes that are kind of just random tunes? And I wanted to put a little bit more, I don't know, artistic thought into it. And so that's what I did. And I was really happy with how it came out. And I'm usually not one to say that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I uh, appreciate that, the thought and the, the human themes. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like, I feel like that is missing in jazz a lot. You know, you're, you're right. There's there's a lot. There's a ton of albums that are these are tunes. And mm-hmm. This is killing. Right. But that bigger connection, I think, is something that we all need to to work on to reach more listeners. I feel like so many other styles of music can really connect to people in in, in that human way. And jazz tr- has historically struggled with that. And, that's for uh, sure. that's for sure um and i think we can have both both things it's not either or we right. can have like really high high quality amazing music and also tell great stories and my personal example is like is like radiohead mm-hmm. you know like their music is super dense and complicated and amazing and they can still get all that connection i'd like to talk a little bit about how you write the nuts and bolts of how you write or have written you know the evolution of it but i'm always very interested in how people do it because everybody's everyone's different Mm -hmm. and uh, everyone has uh really interesting things to say about it so just take us through your your process sure well you're dead on that it's evolved and changed over the years most of my early tunes were exercises basically like, oh, here's a concept, here's something I'm working on, here's a tune to work on that concept. And I like some of those tunes, but I don't think they're as melodically interesting as other things. But um, so now I've moved from kind of like that kind of approach where you're thinking about some sort of musical device as the inspiration for the, the tune perhaps to trying to think about in this particular case the the emotional content or the vibe or the like I just think in my mind like what colors is this you know like what feelings is this and say okay well that means because if I'm composing an album it needs to have a variety it can't just be all one color and it for me you know you could think differently but um, I wanted to have a variety of things and so I kind of planned out in this way like what characters matched up with what colors or moods and then I in this in this record I I've decided I was going to take a a, a polychord a t- two triads and uh, base the whole thing on that and there was this six note cell and this was going to be what it was and I tried to break like I was saying break it down into a million different ways and then so I take now uh, like just a giant piece of score paper and I put like the cell at the top left hand corner and then I just try to fill up the page with all different ideas. And I try to eliminate the judgment of the ideas when I'm writing them. At, at this point, this is a new thing for me that I've been able to actually do this, but um, not worry about if it's good or it's bad. It's just like, this is an idea. Here's another idea. Here's another idea. And just, um, it takes me a couple of weeks usually to get into the composing mindset, just like, you know, practicing. You have to get into the practice of doing it, at least for me. And so just try to do that and just write ideas, 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 and then see if some of them connect or some of them stand out. And then I try to go to the melody first at this point um, in terms of like 
do you write the melody first or the harmony first? Like, <laughs> you have to try to prioritize the melody over the harmony just because I've had more success in the past with tunes where I like, I feel strongly about the melody. The tune always turns out better overall. Or the piece turns better overall. Uh, and maybe that's just because I find it's easier to connect to, I guess, but I've written plenty of tunes that are just like, okay, here's the harmony, here's a cool progression, here's a cool vamp, but I can never find a good melody to fit over it. And it just becomes kind of a, uh, like, let's put this, you know, square peg in this round hole. Like here, here's a, here's a melody. And so anyway, I've been trying to move away from that just for my own, you know, what I like, I guess. And so that kind of starts the process. And so I try to write a melody first and think about, like I said, think about the colors and the, the vibes and the textures and the orchestrations. Um, but again, in this particular record, I was really trying to push myself to not rely on just writing tunes, meaning so some of them are just head solo head type uh, forms, but other, other ones I tried to say, okay, I don't want to do it that way here. Let's see, what else could we do? Is there other, could one person play on this form, another person play on this form, et cetera. So I uh, just tried to push myself outside of my regular box, you know, my jazz, quote unquote, jazz school box and uh, find some other ways to do things. So, you know, I was, I was listening to and working with my big band at school a lot uh, on Brookmeyer music the last couple years. And so I just like, enjoy how he usually does that sort of thing where he doesn't necessarily always have it over just the form of blowing but there's different sections for different people and how it evolves and i've always been a big maria schneider fan and she does that and uh the guy who produces my records ryan truesdell is works with those two people and so we kind of have a similar mindset about how else could you do this and even in the studio you know he would be like well what if you did it that way and then he did it this way you know and we kind of change the form or change you know try to always keep something uh, evolving rather than just being the same head solo head not that there's anything wrong with that there's lots of records i love that are like that but just uh trying to mix it up i don't know if that answered yeah. your question that kind of we kind of went on a <laughs> windy it's, trail it's, it's all good this, this whole thing's a windy trail uh, one of the things that's, that really stood out to me on that record cast of characters other than dave barron who's like one of my favorite bass players is uh your interaction with uh with lucas pino mm. on on saxophones and a thing i've always struggled with and i'm always trying to ask horn players about it and especially horn players who are writing um how do you write for for blend and for like those little interactions like are you thinking those ahead or are those just kind of spur of the moment kinds of things because because you know i'm not a horn player and uh you know i have two horns in my band and i'm always 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 asking them like what do you think about this what do you think about that does this work on horns like sure you know, is this in your range or is, is this cross voice thing going to not work for you guys? Like, cause, cause I, I don't know, but, right. um, but yeah, how do you approach, uh, writing for that kind of like intimate two horn configuration? Sure. So I, the, I don't remember when I started playing in his band, but, uh, so anyway, I play in Lucas's band as well. He has a non at and so we've been talking about orchestration and playing together and all this kind of th thing for 
a, a while, seven, eight years, playing on each other's records and talking about this sort of thing. And at the same time, I've been playing Ryan Truzo, who'd produced the record. He has this Gil Evans project, and I played in that band as well. And so I got pretty kind of into and fascinated by how Gil Evans orchestrates things. And there's, in addition to like the sound of the instruments, he has such a mastery of the, this is maybe sound weird, but like the balance of the weight of the sounds, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. Like, like a flute has a, like a very much less heavy sound than a trombone, for example. And so I've been starting to think about it that way. It's like not only the combination of the instruments and what that sounds together, but the range and also the weight. And so if you end up like with the weight, like the, the crunchy note, like in, in a too heavy of a sound, it sounds very strange. Whereas as it can be more transparent and also have that dissonance uh, if you put it in an instrument that's a little less direct or less heavy. I don't know if these words make sense to people that are listening, but it's just how it is. So for me in my group, that's why I, I kind of write the guitar as like a third horn or like he'll play two mm -hmm. notes sometimes like in the middle of the voicing. Like, so the trombone and the tenor might be spaced and then the guitar could be in the middle because you can't really tell. And then you can have a close voicing where the guitar maybe is a step or a half step away from the trombone or the tenor and you can't, and it just kind of fits into the texture. Anyway, these are just things I've figured out after writing five for five records worth of material for the same band. But um, so writing for, but writing for two horns, that's what I think about is just like that uh, you have to think about the weight and also the sound, like how your sounds blend together. Like Lucas and I have a similar kind of sound ideas about sound you know you might not hear it in our playing but when we talk about it we have a kind of a similar idea and then the last thing that i would say about the phrasing because you were asking about the phrasing is that um i realized and it took me a long time to get to this point but i always had this idea in my head that like when you were sight reading it was your job to be perfect and uh i still think that that's a big part of it when you're sight reading like but i was playing on some broadway shows in new york I was playing with this lead trumpet player and I couldn't figure out why we were playing together, but somehow I wasn't playing with him. And what I realized was that he, was at, he wasn't being strict to the music. He was playing with what he was hearing as opposed to like, oh, that's off on four. And he's like, and if you asked him, oh, is that off on four? He'd be like, yeah, it's off on four. But when he played it, it would be like maybe slightly longer or slightly shorter based on what everyone else was doing and that's what it took for me in that moment that I was like oh you have to play with the people and yes you're playing the music accurately but then there's the second the next level there which is the um the phrasing and I don't know maybe it seems obvious but it's not obvious in the sense that like a certain musicians play things super perfect and that there's the next level of musicians that play it perfectly with each other the first time you know, there's like another level yeah. of like feeling and awareness. And that comes from just, I think, experience. And there's nothing you can do to like speed that process along other than like play with a lot of people and start opening yourself up to that awareness. Because I was just like getting frustrated that I was like, I'm playing this correctly. I'm playing it. What is going on? Why do I suck? <laughs> what is happening? And I was like, oh, okay. I have to actually not play what's there and play what he's playing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and so, yeah, it's a great, great uh great point uh i've i've experienced that uh quite a bit and also with um 
Uh, I've noticed that with, with range of, on the bass, sometimes people write, they want this specific thing, and the range that they want it in just feels super weird in sight reading it. Mm -hmm. You don't, you weren't expecting like that thing, but you just have to like trust it. Sure. Like, yeah, that that is it. That's what they wanted. <laughs> and and if it it is, if you could transport yourself out into the audience, it would sound fine. But like, yeah, right you, from your perspective. Moment, yeah. Um. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, outside in music, which is the the label that you founded and run. Uh, yeah. How did that start? Uh, sure. Yeah. So outside of music started as um, a result of me being too impatient to wait for a label to put out my first record. Uh, mm -hmm. I had it together and I was like, I want to put it out at this time. And some people said, oh, maybe we could put it out, but we couldn't put it out for like, you know, whatever, a year or 10 months or whatever that was. I don't exactly remember. And I was like, well, no, that's not going to work for me. So I just <laughs> went my own way. And so I made a record and just kind of threw together a name and a little you know, logo or whatever. and didn't think much of it. I was like, oh, it's my first record. I'm just going to put this out, self-released, whatever. And then I did a record with another label and recorded for other people on other labels and kind of saw how certain things worked and thought that I didn't think that there should be a so like no solution that put the artist at the center of the equation uh, in terms of flexibility of release dates, flexibility of how they want it to be, what the package looks like, uh, all of those different things where I felt limited in my control with various other things. And I said, oh, well, maybe I can do this myself. So when I stopped teaching at FSU, I decided to throw myself into uh, this label uh, outside in music. And so in 2016, I started helping other people put their records out. And it kind of stemmed from like people were just asking, hey, do you know how to do this? And I'd be like, oh yeah, I know how to do this. And so I would help them with like one part of it. And then uh, eventually I just said, you know what, it's actually faster for me if you just let me do all of it in that way we don't have to like have constant back and forth about like, oh, what about this, what about this? But like, just send me, I'll just do it, it's fine. And so I helped a few friends that way. And then um, it kind of just evolved from there and had another experience with another label. And I was like, you know what, I can do this myself actually. And um, it's just kind of dove in. So kind of from, I guess, 27, 2018, it kind of really started to grow. And we've done almost, we've done between 35 and 40 releases the last two years. And uh, just started to let it, it kind of just grew organically out of wanting there to be some kind of option that let artists do what they wanted to do, basically. Yeah, and um, for full disclosure, uh, I'm releasing um, my next album on next level and um i was put into contact with you or i heard about uh outside in through um it was alexa tarantino actually oh alexa okay cool yeah she, she was on the podcast and uh i asked her who do you recommend to be on the podcast and mm -hmm. she's like uh you were one of, one of the people she recommended and he's she's like he's got this this out um, record label and you should you know check out all this stuff and I was like oh cool 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 and I did and uh, I was planning on self-releasing mm -hmm. um, the album and had self-released my first album um, however 
I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, so um, uh, working with, with you and your team has been, has been really cool. I've learned a, a ton and um, it has been very easy and like everything that I've like wanted to do, uh, either you or, or Alan have been less like, yeah, go ahead. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. That's, so, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's from my perspective, that's what I wanted the label to do when I, I was going doing that. So that's why I, that's why I said that's the point of it is like, I mean, we can't do anything. There's a limit to what yeah. we can do, but um, we try to be as flexible as possible and try to put the, put the artists first, you know? Yeah. Speaking kind of broadly about the jazz recording industry and labels, are what are some things that some people do that you're just like, why, why do we still do it that way? Uh, print, print CDs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a good question, actually. Uh, why do we keep doing it that way? Um, well, I mean, the reason we keep printing CDs is because there's a lot of the industry is uh, hooked on a physical product and they want to have something and it's a differentiator and it gives them information and they like to have a tactile thing and there's a, a practicality of a 10,000 CD library that they're not going to just like digitize it all instantly. And so you need to be able to be in the library with everybody else. Um, but in terms of why do they keep doing it that way, I, I just basically don't know why they don't try to forge the way forward rather than complain about the past or like, oh, we don't sell as much as we used to or whatever. It's like, well, if we focused more on creating new opportunities, I think maybe we would be uh, doing better instead of being like, why can't we sell more CDs focused on, you know, trying to up the, the royalty percentages from the streaming places and um, other things like that would be a better use of our energy, I feel like, as a label community, uh, if everyone could band together to get, you know, to move that decimal point by one, one, that would be like yeah. huge to go from a thousandth of a cent to a hundredth of a cent. It seems like nothing, but it's 10 times as much money and, uh, you know, that's what I wish we could put our energy into things like that rather than bickering about like, should we be doing CDs or this or that or digital or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, it's here. People like it. I like, yeah. I like not having to find a CD to like listen to it. Like I want to just tell my phone to play your record and I want to hear it. So yeah. I think that uh, embracing that frictionless idea is important. And mm -hmm. um, I wish more people would focus on solutions rather than complaining about the, the problems. Um, but in terms of anything specific, you know, I feel like people really should be working on what's going to replace the CD. I feel like everyone says it's streaming, but it's like there's going to be some kind of physical object mm. that's going to, I feel like there's always going to be people that want an object from a show or want an object that, not that plays the music, but that represents the music in some way. And so mm -hmm. different people have tried different things that seem to sort of work and sometimes not work. And, uh, they create really beautiful things like biophilia records make these yeah, really yeah. beautiful packages well they're not packages they're they're yeah, obj they're objects yeah they're <laughs> yeah uh, like they're beautiful and uh it's not really catching on because the industry people really kind of like poo poo anything new you know mm -hmm. we we did something like that in 2016 we sent we did a record that was like to get it, you had to unpack, go through like this maze to like unpack the CD. It was like an or the artist like origami each one so that they would have to like have this experience of unboxing it. And it was yeah. super cool. And they were like, oh yeah, we hated that. 
And I was like, oh, come yeah. on, man. Like, this was super cool. And so I wish people would just like be open, but I can't control them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like there's a lot of things in jazz, in general, as I'm sure with any other kind of art community where we're just kind of so attached to this certain way of doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I see that with, um, you know, going back to the composition thing mm-hmm. um, or even in, in performances where a band will just, everybody will just kind of solo down the line on every song. Right. You know, and uh, why did we do it that way? I'm like, I, I don't know. But um, I'm always looking for those kinds of things to just to think about, see what I can do. Um, I think, believe our time is, is coming up to an end, and it's been super fun hanging out with you. Um, but what is, what's next for you? What are some of the things that are, you got on the horizon? I know we're still in quarantine right yeah, now. Yeah, that's true. Um, what's next is I'm working on, well, I'm always working on a bunch of things, but trying to get more things set up for the label. We have like what we're doing for you uh, are a couple of imprints that will allow us to actually release more music because we started Next Level to focus on early career musicians, uh, first record, second record kind of vibe um, to try to introduce people in a semi, semi-affordable semi way to the industry. I know I've spent a lot of money on publicists in the past that have not gotten a lot of uh I don't know what you want to call it, stuff back, <laughs> reviews yeah. and such. But um, uh, so we're doing that and we're launching another imprint to be able to kind of spread out stuff a little bit more because we don't want to overburden the industry with like, oh my God, and outside of music sending us 50 releases. So it helps us <laughs> it helps us to be able to um, actually get more done by having these different imprints. So we have Next Level. And then we're also starting one that's more focused on like academia, like doing school projects and stuff. There's sometimes there's like school ensembles that want to put stuff out or students and stuff. So we're going to kind of split split that off into another imprint of our, of the label so that it can start to build separate brands within our what we're doing. My summer is starting to get canceled, so I'm trying to mm. figure out what's what's next for that. Um, in terms of I was supposed to go to Australia and Japan uh, to tour the record and stuff, but. Uh, uh, it's not going to happen, which is fine, and <laughs> we're going to move on. But um, yeah, so trying to do that, I always, I'm always trying to work on keeping all kind of three facets or four facets of my playing going, meaning the educational stuff when I'm working on a duet book and then uh, also working on um, being able to play with people still. Uh, not Cohen, we had a bunch of gigs I played with her a bunch, and we were, uh, all those were canceled <laughs> for the summer mostly. And, Try to keep that going. We're supposed to play at the Detroit Jazz Festival in September, so we're kind of hanging on that one. It's like, okay, maybe by September we can get back. Uh, and that, and then with the label, like I was saying, just trying to get all everybody's stuff out. And yeah, I have an idea for a summer program I might start, but I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to give up on the hope that we could get back to doing things in the summer yet. This is what's hanging me up. I'm like, I should do this, but I'm like, ah, but it would be really nice if we could actually just like not have to do a virtual uh, event and actually have an event, but we'll see what happens. So I'm just trying to, like I said before, just kind of be open to where opportunities lead and uh, see what's next. Great. Um, And also um, where, where can people find you? What's, what's the best way for people to see what you're up to? Sure. Yeah. I try to keep everything at 
my website, nickfinzermusic.com. I'm doing a lot of live streaming stuff during this time, and all those things are there. If you want to check out the label, it's uh, outsideinmusic.com, and you can find out about the different imprints and all the new services that we're doing. And uh, I'm most active on Instagram, and just my name, at Nick Finzer, and then you can find me there. Great. Nick Finzer, thanks so much for hanging out with me. Yeah, thanks, Nicholas. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for listening to the Voice Equals Power podcast. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment. If you have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on the show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, your voice is your power.